0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 227 of the Quickie Podcast. I am your host, Dave Hopkins. Thanks so much for being here. Got another great guest today, and just uh, consider yourself warned, this episode is definitely not 30 minutes-ish, definitely not, but it's jam-packed with bloody gold, just awesome stuff. Okay, so <clears throat> let's just let's just introduce today's guest. I got this new little like fake standing desk set up. It's not fake, it's really, I'm really standing. Um, just kind of got like the monitor up on a, a, a crate. And then I've got the mouse elevated. And I'm standing on a yoga mat for comfort. I know you were wondering, so I wanted to tell you. Um... Yeah, it's not bad, but I kind of feel like I should be like be moving my hips and things like that. You can't even see what I'm doing. This is ridiculous. Um, today's guest, today's guest, today's guest is Emma Fanning. She is a sustainable green graphic designer working as Little Fox Design Studio. I forgot to ask her the meaning behind that. I'm going to have to do that. Emma, I know you're listening. What's the meaning behind the name of the studio? Is there a story there or is it just Clever. Anyways, during this episode, we talk about, of course, the brand new launch of her course, the Green Graphic Design course. It's launched. It's out there. It's doing amazing things for the world and for graphic designers. So you gotta go check that out. We also talk about how the world just continued to point her in the direction of design. Even though she wasn't directly pursuing it, the world just kept Kept pointing her in that direction. She then shares with us a job that she had, a specific job that really opened her eyes to creativity and unique ways to look at the world. And that is really inspiring to her. We also, of course, talk about green and sustainable graphic design, what that means, what's involved with it. And I even sort of niched it down and specifically asked, like in print, like something that we could talk about in print, and how can you put it in practice? in print and some of the simple decisions you make there. Emma also shares with us the comfort that she gave up that really pushed her to start her own studio and the challenges that she faced along the way on that journey. And then of course, you know, when you're a designer and you are a sustainable and green graphic designer, you inevitably will run into client pushback based on some of your studio's principles and things like that. Even if there's a contract up front that states, here's your beliefs, here's why, this you implement this into your process, into your design. And even if they sign it, you inevitably will face pushback. She tells us how she deals with that and when it usually comes up. Of course, we dive deeper into the course. And gosh, so much more. This is a gem, a great episode. I loved this one. And I can't wait to hear what you think. So ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. My guest Emma Fanning. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a quickie?
0: Good morning, Emma. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. I'm really well. Uh, it's really nice here on the island.
0: Awesome. So, you are a fellow BC BCer? Is that right? Yeah, BCer. Up in Canada here, you're experiencing the wildfire smoke just like I am today,
1: yep it's uh still a ten plus out of ten on the air quality index today, yeah
0: Vancouver, I think was the worst air quality in the world yesterday or the day before
1: oh it's it's horrible like it it you can feel it in your lungs it's mm-hmm. it's everywhere like mm-hmm. it it sucks being inside, especially for like the last bit of summer, which now didn't exist because the wildfires.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, but summer started in March. So
1: that's true. <laughs> for my kid,
0: for my kids anyways. Gosh. <laughs> awesome. So before we get too deep into this, I have to ask you, are you ready for a quickie? Sweet.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So let's uh, start with the tough stuff. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself.
1: Yeah, so uh, my name is Emma, and I'm a sustainable graphic designer, which means that with my studio, Little Fox Design, I'm really focusing on uh, minimizing my environmental impact as a designer and ensuring that every single thing that I create for my clients is also kind to the environment and lowers their impact as well. So, Mm -hmm. for example, on business cards, I always print them on 100% recycled paper or some kind of, of supply chain uh, for the paper that's been verified in terms of the forestry so that our old growth forests are being preserved Mm -hmm. and that there's a minimal carbon and water and um, energy footprint for that stock.
0: Perfect. So have you ever printed business cards on on the seed paper?
1: I haven't, but I really want to. I haven't had a client that's actually like gone for it Mm -hmm. yet. Um, I think that I'm going to have to order some samples myself actually, because I've heard from some people that the seeds don't actually plant or grow. um, But I want to verify that for myself.
0: Really? I have definitely grown things from seed paper before. Um, However, the print method can also change that. I mean, totally Mm -hmm. getting off topic here, but if you print them digitally they are less likely to grow in my experience, just because of the heat of the digital presses and the digital like toner infusers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you print offset with them, you, yeah, plant them, grow some stuff. Oh,
1: that's that's really good to keep in mind. I know that there's a company in Ontario uh, that does a lot of seed paper and mm-hmm. they seem to be kind of like the industry leader for it. And I'm curious, I'll have to ask them now if they print offset or digital.
0: Yeah, like certain digital presses, like if you're into like HP Indigo where there's less heat and things like that, but your, your traditional digital printing can impact the, the seed growth.
1: That's really interesting. I'll keep that in
0: mind. We're in deep already. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. I want to um, also mention here that not only are you a graphic designer, a green graphic designer, but you are officially a online course owner as of yesterday. So congratulations on that. Like, let's take a minute here and tell me about this green graphic design course that just launched.
1: Yeah. So basically i have been doing an insane amount of research and education and university reading and academic paper reading about sustainable design for the last basically two or three years now uh, because when i started i realized that there really wasn't a lot of information about how to be a sustainable graphic designer there were a few books which i commend those authors for creating them about over 10 years ago Uh, however it's been a decade and a lot of the information that they shared was now out of date and i couldn't find anything That was relevant to 2020. Um, And so I've been doing this research myself independently, looking at academic papers, really trying to understand the science behind climate and how we got here and how all of these sort of industries that affect climate impact graphic design and how, you know, forestry relates to design and how, you know, water usage relates to design. And so the course is really designed to summarize all of my research into a extremely comprehensive accessible low-priced course available for any designer that wants to be sustainable because it was hard for me to find the information and it was hard for me to build Mm -hmm. the frameworks to be able to evaluate printers and papers and methods and so the course is the sum total of all my research and i'm so excited to be able to share it with people because i really think that everyone should be a sustainable graphic designer like i don't think it should be me having the specialty so i'm really looking to you know, help raise awareness for that.
0: That is awesome. So congratulations on that. And that sounds like a mountain of work. And you basically consolidated this in this easily digestible course format for this greater good of having graphic designers just make more sustainable choices in their careers.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a lot of content. Like on the course page, it's like 20 plus hours and like a lot of workbooks and templates and you know all the behind the scenes stuff with my studio so mm-hmm. I do an environmental impact report and I have certain qualifications for printers that I work with and uh, even environmental policies in my contracts that clients have to sign um, so all of that's going into the course.
0: Very cool okay now somebody who's interested in this where can they find out more about it where can they check the sales page or, or, or find out the info?
1: So it's on my website www.littlefoxdesign.com, and then on the menu bar, there's a call to action big button that says "Green Graphic Design Course." So that's the proper sales page with probably too much information, but I wanted everyone <laughs> to have all the all the info they needed to make like an educated, informed decision, and not mm-hmm. hide information, uh, you know, by having to talk to me or something.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, that's awesome. I love that. Um, So now I want to talk about you, Emma, and I want to start by kicking this way back to childhood. What was your childhood like? Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that sort of pointed you in this career path?
1: I think definitely. Uh, It's actually something that I think Corona has been getting me to think about a little bit more. Um, I remember being 16 and swearing that I was never going to be a graphic designer because I didn't want to interact with clients, (laughs) um, which is really (laughs) funny now. But, you know, going back to childhood, I was extremely lucky to have a mom that, you know, was a stay at home mom and she spent a lot of time with me and we were always doing something creative. So, you know, we were always going for walks and scavenger hunts and spending time in nature and going to the beach. And she really helped foster this sense of imagination and appreciation for the planet that we have. And I can see that carry through in my design work, obviously now caring so much about um, the planet and sustainability but you know as a child i was always very interested in you know when it came time to do school projects where we had to create books being very attentive to the kinds of page numbers that i picked for the book like i remember for one project being very specific the page numbers had to look like cats with the page (laughs) number on top (laughs) um or like a book report where i was very proud to pick the skia font from google dot or google word um google word wow i'm a the the eras are blurring together. From Microsoft Word, I now use Google Docs, um, but picking Skia for a book report because I liked the way that it looked organic, even though now I cringe looking at that font. Um, (laughs) And just, I was really into like the word art that was so like ugly and gradienty. But, you know, these things I really did care about as a child. So it Mm. makes sense now that my progression to becoming a designer was pretty natural, even if I sort of rebelled against it for a little while.
0: <laughs> so even during that rebellious stage, did you have a a parent or a family member who was in graphic design or maybe a teacher and that sort of said like, Hey, you should really look at this even though you're rebelling against it.
1: Um, not really. Um, I have an aunt that did do a little bit of graphic design, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't really something that we talked a lot about or she didn't really like necessarily like directly encourage me to do it i always looked up to her but um it, it was never sort of like a direct influence i think it i more i really thought i wanted to work in museums and so i was interning there and you know working behind usually with the collections and I, that's what i thought i wanted to do but basically every single museum position that I took, I ended up as the graphic designer for the museum, (laughs) uh, just naturally because someone would ask me to do a poster and then they'd be like, oh, wow, that's really good. Okay, you're now in marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, basically, I kind of just shuffled my way into becoming a designer and learning on the job and then realizing that I actually do like it a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the world just kind of like kept pointing you in the direction of graphic design, even though you're like, what? No, this is, this is not. (laughs) So you finally gave it.
1: Yeah. I think like part of the problem was that I was a really shy child. So Mm -hmm. I felt that the concept of communicating with clients and, you know, being able to have that authoritative role was just like so far out of my wheelhouse, there was no Mm -hmm. way I was going to be able to actually take that on. And so, you know, as I grew up and got bolder and braver and more confident, then it became more normal.
0: Got it. Now, during this process of the world pointing you in the direction of graphic design and even your early days in design, is there one specific design that stands out to you as maybe the most influential design of your life so far? Something that you saw and have just stuck with you since?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. And I think the best answer to that is really the natural history exhibits at the Royal BC Museum here. Oh, cool. Um, because I spent a lot of time there as a child, um, probably like way too much time, but I just loved them. I, I loved the exhibits. I loved the way that the content was displayed. And it was very minimal, especially for like exhibits that were designed in the 70s. Uh, they were sort of really pulling in these you know, minimalist white space, uh, beautiful photography design trends that uh-huh. maybe weren't as common back then. And, you know, it it just always resonated with me as being something that was really beautiful and educational and informative, and I could spend hours going through those exhibits. And so, you know, I I think that anytime that I need a sort of creative inspiration again, I I go to the museum, and I think it was pretty, like, formational, even now looking back, like, in terms of I'm a sustainable designer now, and obviously natural history (laughs) exhibits are are very much about our natural world and and the things living uh, in it, and so... I think that sort of helped influence my, you know, desire to go in this direction and, and become a designer.
0: That's such a cool one because it's taking something that, you know, involves the the showcasing of items and physical items, but also mm-hmm. there's design in, in signage and in experience. It's really a, a big c a multi-sensory experience. And that mm-hmm. and the way that you experienced that, God, I've said experience a lot. The way you've experienced that was the impactful and influential portion of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when I was like between like 16 and 20 working in in museums, I, Mm -hmm. you know, ended up designing exhibits and and learning that sort of trade. And so I think that almost having that experience of thinking about the whole thing. So like thinking about, okay, what does the copy have to look like? Where does the copy go? What is accessible uh, for people how do you design the exhibit in a way that makes sense to people walking through it? I think that that has actually really, really helped my you know, design career in terms of branding because I sort of treat each brand almost like a mini exhibit. I don't tell my clients that, but mm-hmm. there's a lot that I'm pulling in from that background that really helps me today.
0: Very cool. So I'm, i interested to hear your answer to this next question um, being in that green graphic design world, because I'm, I'm newer to that. I understand the print side of that, just based on my background and and how to make those environmentally friendly or more environmentally friendly choices. But from the rest of design, who are some of the designers and brands that you look up to and closely follow that maybe are doing a great job of this?
1: That's a great question. Um, There's mostly some brands that are doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, They're usually kind of smaller brands because, uh, to be quite honest, I don't really think that big brands have the capability of doing sustainability very well. It's a lot harder, uh, I like, imagine. There's too much inertia for them to really make uh, changes that, you know, ultimately will affect their bottom line in terms of revenue, even if it's temporary, uh, just due to, you know, organizational structures. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a zero waste sort of like, I guess they're kind of like they, they sell soaps and shampoo bars and that kind of thing, but, um, called uh, Be Humankind and they have incredible branding. It's very scientific based and uh, I love using them as sort of like a case study for people when I'm talking about green design because they've really taken their values and translated that across their packaging, across their branding uh, at their website and made, it, made sustainability something that's really easy to break down the concepts of that they are pulling into their product and making it easy for people to understand and really sort of elevating themselves above their competition. Um, But then there's some other amazing sort of magazines that I've been following. One's called B-Side. It's out of Montreal. And it's a really incredible sort of incredibly designed, but it's kind of like a science nature journal Mm -hmm. um, where they talk about climate and a lot of focus on indigenous stories and people of color as well uh, in both French and English, which is always interesting to see. Um, And then there's a magazine, I believe, out of L.A. called Atmos, uh, which, again, focuses a lot on, like, climate science and design and photography and the intersection of those things. And Mm. I find those publications probably, like, the most inspiring because they're really, again, on that educational side. um, And I I love a good magazine. They're not really magazines, though. They're, like, 300 pages. So (laughs) so it's like a a tome that you get. Mm-hmm
0: that's awesome yeah you definitely know the brands like you just like shouted those off like the tip of your tongue so you obviously have looked into it and researched it um when it comes to designers um one of the crew or a crew that i have interviewed on the quickie podcast uh, cast iron design um, i love them yeah because they uh johnny and richard they also have sustainability and green graphic design as part of their business and i had a great conversation mm-hmm. with them on the podcast about that um so yeah, that's good to hear that you're familiar with them and that you're a part of that. So, Emma, yeah,
1: no, I, I've never talked to them, but yeah. I know them and I respect them. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. A lot of their stuff is really good too. So I'm going to do a new feature here with you on the Quickie Podcast and I'll iron out how this is going to go later on, but you're going to just sort of guinea pig this with me. Okay. I'm looking at your Instagram account right now, Little Fox Design Studio, and I'm basically just going to pick a couple of posts show you in the camera here and, okay. um, and you're just going to have to talk through this and explain it. with Okay. Ooh, which one? Cause I want to get a couple. So we'll start with this one actually. And I, I understand this is a, um, a carousel, but the, the first slide definitely caught my attention.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and as for those not, uh, viewing, uh, it's basically, Uh, Fuck your carbon footprint is the first slide. (laughs) So Emma, talk me through this one.
1: Yeah, so basically, um, especially in Corona, there's been a trend upwards for a lot of individual blame, concern, fear, and anxiety around your individual carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And this post was actually quite controversial. A lot of people, I'd say like about like 80% of people understood it and 20% of people were very mad. Um, <laughs> but the point of the post was just to understand that, you know, your individual carbon footprint is important, but the term carbon footprint was popularized by BP oil, which is the sixth biggest polluter in the world. and one of the main reasons why we actually have climate crisis as a pressing issue today because of their um, campaigns, their PR campaigns to muddy the water back in the 70s. So it's really important to understand that this concept of individual responsibility and we need to drive less and we need to eat less meat, it's really important However, you need to understand that an oil company wants you to believe that it's your job to fix climate crisis instead of their job. Mm -hmm. And it's really important, of course, to understand your footprint and, you know, be able to minimize those choices. But sometimes they're more about your own mental health and creating a sense of autonomy for you in being able to continue fighting the good fight for climate crisis than it is about, like, is this action going to solve climate crisis? Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the really important takeaways that I was trying to, you know, summarize at the end of the carousel were, you know, we really need to be fighting for like collective action and voting in politicians, even on a local level that are, you know, championing green policies and are championing like climate justice and are really trying to push the envelope forward instead of just we all need to eat less meat because, you know, that's important. But we really need to be thinking bigger picture in terms of how we engage as activists in the climate space. And I see a lot of people that are really upset because, you know, they need to fly to see their family or they need to drive to go to work or they just simply can't afford a zero waste option. And so I really wanted to try and alleviate some of that guilt because we're not perfect and the system that we're in is designed to make it difficult to make those sustainable choices. And so it's really more than just your individual impact.
0: Sing it, sister. (laughs) That's awesome. Um I love the play on that where you know, like obviously that initial slide would get attention. Mm-hmm. And people's response to it is almost less about what you're saying and more about what they're feeling.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um I, I had like a, one company from New Zealand that actually got extremely upset on the post. Um and you know they were sort of Believing that, you know, obviously change has to start small and it builds like a tidal wave and Mm -hmm. we can all make better choices and then businesses can do better But the inertia from that simply stops at a certain point Mm -hmm. We can't boycott coca-cola and have them stop being like the biggest polluter in the world They simply have too much lobby power too much control over policy and too much global influence to, to have that really make a change And so like i'm a small business i'm all for greening the small business space and creating those, you know, opportunities and options to be able to have a lower footprint and to create that diversity for consumers. But, you know, it's it's bigger than that. Like there are Mm -hmm. politics involved. Climate crisis is a political topic and we can't ignore policy when we talk about climate and what that means for North America and the world.
0: Yeah, and really big business will only make that sort of change if it will benefit them or if the consumer is is expecting that of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think like one of the important things too, is that they're always going to take the path of least resistance. So right. if there's something that they can do that generates a huge PR campaign for them that makes them look greener than they actually are, they're always going to take that path instead of actually pursuing the more sustainable one. And so that's why I'm always particularly wary about, you know, Oh, Coca-Cola has a new, recycling machine for consumers instead of actually changing the way that their bottles are composed or, you know, stuff like that. I think mm-hmm. it's just really important to understand that there's always like a bottom line that they're paying attention to and, you know, other places that they're putting their money. So maybe they put $100,000 into a, a recycling station, but they put like triple that into lobbying against a bottle bill. So you got to look where the money is going, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically.
0: Yeah. It's like there's this this chasm or this gap, You're like small businesses can make can be nimble and to make these choices and to do these things, mm-hmm. you know, almost immediately they can implement them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, however, there's this gap in between the small business world and large corporations. There's this gap mm-hmm. and it's a matter of how does those choices and policies and things that are good for the earth and for humans cross that gap.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. It is. Is something that I think we're all figuring out together in this space, and there's no real right or wrong answer other than maybe don't trust Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. Um, so here's the next one that I want to show through the uh, camera, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. It's a post that says, I contain heavy metals and will pollute soil and water.
1: Yes. So I was sort of experimenting with that post. This mm-hmm. was pretty early on in my sharing of green graphic design information. And yep. I tried a little series where I mocked up different coatings on paper with Photoshop and sort of instead of putting a logo there, I put the environmental hazards that the coating contained. Yep. And so that was really interesting because the foils and heavy metals on paper is a wee bit controversial uh, in terms of whether or not it's recyclable. In most municipal, And industrial recycling facilities, it's not. In Mm -hmm. some industrial recycling facilities, it is. However, most consumer products that you're buying at the store or business cards that you're receiving are not going to an industrial recycling facility, which is a really important difference. Um, But there's also a study from, I believe it was the late 90s, um, that was produced by a foil company that was privately done by them. That says it is recyclable. However, you can't find the study anywhere. It's not in any academic papers. It's not peer-reviewed at all. And you have to pay like a thousand dollars to get a hold of the study. And so when you're Googling this information about the foils, you sort of hear, oh, it's recyclable based on this study. But when you track back to the study, it's not available. And so everyone is just reading someone else's blog post reading that it's available, not checking the, or recyclable, not checking the source, using that information and it like sort of recycling this myth um, and all of the best information that I have seen about mixed paper recycling and you know how that actually works in terms of especially municipal recycling systems, it just, it doesn't work so well. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: And that totally plays into what's going on right now in the world. And I've had many conversations with people about this is that there's no objective thinking right now. Mm-hmm. That's how it feels like, right? Where mm-hmm. a, a study will, or a, a headline will read, one in five Canadians um, think that the coronavirus is fake or some crazy headline like that. You're like, what? And you look at it and they interviewed 107 people in one municipal area mm-hmm. a, w- for this study. Like, how is that a summary of all Canadians?
1: Yeah, <laughs> How can that even
0: be stated, right? So it's the same kind of thing when you read something, but that kind of information that's way down at the bottom of the article and you sometimes have to click another link to go to another link to really find out the details of that study, the details of that report. Mm-hmm. And it's not until three or four levels deep where you go, oh, okay, so this is incredibly biased and not necessarily the most accurate information or a manipulation of the information to... To support the narrative that they want you to know mm-hmm. and yeah it's, this is subjective thinking
1: mm-hmm. i i think it's like a really i mean this is basically the problem of misinformation and mm-hmm. fake news i guess you could say if we want to you know bring up that yeah. that meme <laughs> um but I, I think i think it becomes extremely difficult for consumers because as much as, you know, something like that is, is clearly just sort of clickbait and, you know, trying to get the the views on, on the article, there's a lot of more serious studies that, by particular think tanks that have a particular political agenda that they're trying to push. And they are presenting information in a way that makes it seem very accessible. It's often extremely catchy and sort of like a, a really sticky phrase. Um, And I think it becomes difficult then to be able to vet and source information if you don't have a framework that you're relying off of to understand what is sustainable, what's not. And, you know, even where's the funding coming from, you know, what sort of what sort of greater agenda um, is happening? And I think that having that framework is something that you kind of need to bring into every single news article that you read, whether or not it's about coronavirus, who's posting it, what are they talking about, what Mm -hmm. kind of people are they featuring, you know, what sort of stories do they think are important um, and bringing that into, you know, every single thing that we read, but that's not really something that's taught or is really available. Uh, It's actually something that my uh, business partner and I have been discussing about even just creating a free mini course for how to vet news sources have that sustainable material because, um, it's hard, it's extremely difficult and it's designed to be difficult. Like they're designed to trick you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just going to like, I have a really great example that I want to, I don't want to just get the numbers wrong. (laughs) Um, but so I'm just going to like check it really quick. Um, but there was a recent stat about Netflix. And it came out of a right-wing think tank when you followed the money. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was basically saying that, um, so a really good example of misinformation is a stat that was released by a think tank called Big Think. And they came to the conclusion uh, through their study that the emissions generated by watching 30 minutes of Netflix is the same as driving almost four miles. And this was something that was extremely popular over social media recently. And, you know, it was something that people really grabbed onto because it was extremely sticky. Mm. And obviously it's very catchy. You can repeat it to anyone. And it really makes you feel, again, that your individual impact of like, oh my God, I just watched... An episode of gilmore girls like this is i've committed a climate sin um but when you know you go back to the funding source for that uh, it was funded by oil and gas and you know they have a particular political agenda that they put out with all of their studies at big think and the you know methodology that they used was incredibly flawed but you had to go back to the original study to actually dissect it and understand that that stat really wasn't in good faith and that wasn't trying to uh, create a situation in which people could be more aware about their choices. Um, It's just, again, another layer of blaming the consumer for something that industry is actually responsible for.
0: Mm -hmm. Jeez. Yeah. And that all ties into design and research and um, independent thinking and problem solving, all of which are skills of design. Absolutely. And tie right back into the design, being a sustainable designer, and putting this this work in and this thought process into a brand that you are creating. Mm-hmm. How will this be perceived? How can we have the backing on this so that it's not just a sticky thing, but it's it's good and it serves mm-hmm. a good purpose. Absolutely, Love it. yeah.
1: I think, like in a sense, there is a lot we can learn from. You know articles published like that or you know my partner and i have discussions about you know even the things that trump says like i'm not sure if this is like too political for your podcast but the things he says are extremely sticky and they they stick in people's brains and they remember them and everyone knows what trump last said in his his talk but no one really remembers what obama said even though technically like you know he was extremely well spoken but the phrases weren't as sticky. And so I think that that's something we can bring into our branding and design work, especially in sustainability, building mission statements, helping brands clarify their values, Mm -hmm. is being able to use that element of creating something that really is easy to remember and resonates and creating that and using that for good instead of using that in the way that, you know, a far right think tank would. And I think that that's something we can co-opt from the right and really like build into our brand statements and, you know, make them all the better for that and Mm -hmm. sort of transform that landscape of, you know, important information, brand values, and brand mission. So that customers and consumers, it's easier for them to be able to make the right choices because you're having something that's incredibly sticky that they can understand and then breaking down the transparency below that, Mm -hmm. uh, which is of course something that a, a, some, a, uh, A far-right think tank wouldn't do there. They won't be transparent about it. So I think that the transparency is really key.
0: Definitely. I love how you connected that to design and mission statements and branding and and helping develop values because understanding those and understanding those for the companies that you're doing work for in the creative field is directly aligned. So I love how you connected that. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, Emma, I have to take you down the part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, and I want to pull those stories out and share those with the listeners. Um, We'll spin it around in the end and and finish up in a happy place. But for now, let's do it together. Um, What has been the most challenging period of time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it?
1: So when I started my company, it was... Really, kind of spontaneous, I didn't give it a lot of thought, and I just sort of jumped in because right. I was working with a a client that came from a museum that we both used to work at, and they were moving on to a new position, and they wanted me as a designer to come along and I had really a, an incredible period of years working with this person like i, I don't think that, like you know great that experience at all. it was incredibly beneficial for my career. I learned so much, mm-hmm. um but you know there came a time where I realized that what I wanted to do wasn't just be a contractor for different nonprofits in the space. I really wanted to have my own company, my own mission, and focus on the sustainable design portion. And granted, while I was taking on clients all throughout that process, um, I, it was really taking up most of my time. And so it was an extremely scary move to be able to like jump into the freelance space fully, even though technically I was always there, but really sort of have that you know, burden of paying your bills all on your own, um, without like retainer money coming in. And, you know, it was extremely scary to sort of switch gears like that and lose that financial stability. Um, because even though, you know, I was pretty sure that I could make it, <laughs> um, it was very, very stressful to, to actually make that choice and, you know, uh, quit the positions and, and sort of just trust that little Fox was going to work out. And, It was a little bit bumpy for the first few months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really scary because I'm on an island and my business spheres aren't really interested in sustainable design. And while some people are very supportive, it can be difficult to build a business in a small city on an island where there isn't the same hustle and bustle as Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto uh, for Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that what I was gonna have to do was a sort of a long game in terms of marketing and strategy and building a community and becoming sort of like a voice for sustainability in the design space online. And it's taken several years to get to that point. Um, But in the beginning it was really hard because I wasn't sure how to share information i felt that i wasn't enough of a like authority on the topic that i could even deem myself worthy to be sharing and teaching someone else Mm -hmm. and these were really like huge hurdles for me to jump over with my business of just being uh comfortable to accept that i'm going to make mistakes in the information that i'm sharing and Mm -hmm. that that's okay because what i'm sharing is my best possible like um knowledge base at the time and if I get something wrong and learn about it later that I mis- like made a mistake, which totally happened, I mixed up some like chlorine bleaching information about paper because there's a couple of terms for that that are very industry greenwash uh, that I didn't know about, you can just go back and, you know, form like make a formal apology and-, and retract what you've said. And that was something really important for me to learn that it's more important that you share information than it is that you be 100% right all of the time because you can't always fix it. <laughs>
0: a hundred percent um so in that journey from you basically gave up comfort in an effort Mm -hmm. to really pursue the studio and how long do you feel it took from oh my god I just gave up the comfort to okay I got this this is this is working out
1: um I would say about seven months yeah um And, you know, that was just a lot of hustling, doing a lot of business cards for people, really trying to, you know, just work locally as much as I could. Flagging Um,
0: business cards. Nice.
1: Yeah. So many, (laughs) so much collateral. (laughs) Um, I've done so much collateral. I actually don't want to do any more collateral. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, just like a lot of work that I wasn't passionate about really, Mm -hmm. or that, you know, was it particular? like, it wasn't that it wasn't in line with what I wanted to be doing, but the clients would just sort of say like, Oh, like, that's nice. You do your little green design thing. I don't care. Um, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the wrong demographic of people. Um, and you know, occasionally there would be clients that would come along where it was very explicit that I don't print soft touch matte coatings or laminates on business cards. Sorry, that's plastic. Um, and then, you know, they try and go behind my back and talk to the printer, uh, Behind me, and, and get the soft touch, matte coating on their business card. Um, and so, you know, some clients just really didn't understand, and that was something I really had to learn as well. Is that even in the sustainability space, even with my environmentally friendly contracts that people have to sign, even with all of the upfront client education that I do, occasionally people are just gonna reach a point in the design process where they're gonna start rebelling against the sustainable stuff um, for reasons that make sense or not, and it's okay to sometimes have the project not really turn out the way that you want it to. Um, in the case with the plastic laminate coatings, because the business community here is small, I put my foot down and you know basically forbade them to do that. Um, because if they say, oh, little fox has made my business card and it's got a plastic coating on it, then that ruins my integrity. And obviously in a small community, that's like something I can't do. Yeah. Um, If I don't have my morals and my integrity, then, you know, what do I have? Um, But, you know, in general, sometimes things aren't going to work out the right way and that's okay.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great sort of segue into this next one where I want to get a little bit more specific. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you take us to a specific design or project that you were a part of that did not go well, did not bring the desired result? What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story?
1: Uh, so probably the worst one, and was really sort of the tipping point that got me to quit the uh, retainer jobs is um there was a video that I was producing for an awards show, mm-hmm. and there was about a four month time line on which uh, the video had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as most client projects go, everything was done up until the last minute, and most of the revisions, which of which there were over 10, probably more like 20, happened in the week before the video
0: oh my goodness. Uh,
1: went live. And there were revisions up until the point where, like, the hour before the video went live. <sighs> and <laughs> on the last export of the video, I didn't know this because I was rushing, and I didn't check the video, and I should have checked the video. But text frames suddenly, like, went offline, and video clips went offline. For, I don't even know how it happened. It's never happened to me in a video project before. Um, and I have like 10 years in video editing. So for some reason on the final export, some of the pieces of the video just like disappeared and didn't show. Yes. And no one else checked the video either. <laughs> and so a wrong version of the video with a bunch of missing text aired on the awards show. And everyone was very mad. And I was honestly probably the most upset <laughs> because yeah it's, that's not the kind of work that I'm proud of. And I should have checked the video, but there were so many revisions and it just, it was at a point where it was just too much and they needed it done. And there was a last change and I just assumed it was fine and sent the video and, you know, you know, I, I, I carried the, the guilt for having that not turn out, but at a certain point, the, you know, way that the project was managed was just it couldn't have created a good outcome no matter what. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I still feel bad about it. Like I apologize, you know, I apologized, and there's nothing I can do. Like you can't take back a video playing <laughs> for an awards show. Um, but that really taught me a lot of lessons about the kinds of projects that I wanna be working with, the kinds of timelines that I wanna have with my clients. and. Mm-hmm the number of visions I want to do on a project <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. as simple
1: as that is just to a point um, where like you just go, you have-
0: okay, hold on
1: here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like at a certain point, you know, things have to be finished and they should be finished ahead of time. And, you know, timeline should be considered from the beginning and not, not at the end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. All mm-hmm. part of that, like the learning, you know, they always say that the, the contract that your customers sign, all those terms and conditions, like there's horror stories behind each one of those where it's been a terrible experience and you're like I never want this to happen again so let's add a condition
1: yeah absolutely and you know honestly I think that paying attention to all of those things in the contract up front actually make for a better project even if the client is like mm-hmm. seriously you gave me a three four five page contract it's like yep yeah, it's all important so you should read it
0: <laughs> yeah exactly it's all there for a reason. Mm -hmm. um emma can you uh i guess yeah i'm gonna ask this one i was debating on it but i'm gonna ask it um what is something that you're struggling with in your design career right now
1: right now honestly is just the problem of growing the company in, in an uncertain time um as much as the course launch going extremely well um and That being, you know, the focus of my attention right now and and with the goal of it being sustainable passive income uh, at the same time as, you know, education for the industry at Corona is taking a toll on the economies across the globe. And I think it's prudent to be aware of that and prudent to understand that we are going into slash are in a recession. And this is going to have consequences on the design industry and the marketing space that we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And. So right now the studio is really busy and amazing and it's wonderful and I'm so grateful. Um, But it's at a point where I would want to hire someone on to sort of help with the design, but I don't feel comfortable doing that yet because I don't know that the boom that is happening right now is just temporary and it's just going to be sort of like September, October, November, and then December, January, the new consequences of Corona are going to kick in. I don't know. And so I can't feel comfortable really expanding. And it's, it's hard because I almost weekly, I get uh, inquiries from students in the States that really want to intern at the company. And it breaks my heart to be able to like have to turn them down because I don't know that it's, you know, financially responsible for me to uh, hire them on and pay them and then potentially not be able to pay them if things go bad in the future. Mm -hmm. And I know that's kind of like a more pessimistic outlook, but I'm actually an extremely risk adverse person, and so I know that doesn't really fit with the entrepreneurial attitude. But I like to do things very slowly and methodically, and not take these giant, giant risks um, until I think that the the possibility of the the benefit for that is is lowered, mm-hmm. um, or you know, outweighs the risk. And so I'd love to be able to you know sponsor these students' educations more, but I just it's so uncertain because I I know that. You know, technically, when there's a recession, people's marketing budgets go down Mm -hmm. and the first thing that they cut is design. And that's just real.
0: I was literally just about to say that anytime there's any sort of economic uncertainty anywhere in the world, the first thing to go is the marketing budget, which Mm -hmm. affects designers, which affects printers, which affects, um, you know, distribution houses for those materials. Like there's a Mm -hmm. chain that -hmm. that follows and that affects, right? So yeah, definitely. But what's been interesting about print specifically in this Corona time is that commercial print and magazines and annual reports, those sort of, you know, print staples are put on hold, Mm -hmm. but food packaging, cosmetic packaging, pharmaceutical packaging, like Mm -hmm. all of that is booming, like way, way, way busier. So as a graphic designer, the ones that I've seen, come through this process least affected and some of them even grow in their businesses are ones who have the skills and the knowledge to easily pivot from I do annual reports and stationery to I also do food packaging and beverage packaging and shrink sleeves Mm -hmm. and labels and things like that
1: yeah that's actually exactly what's happening right now we have a lot of requests for sustainable packaging and Mm so you know our the way that we do it is we also help with research sourcing and Mm -hmm. you know talking to manufacturers for our clients and then we'll do the designing on the die lines and stuff but the this the research comes first and so that's been the most popular inquiry right now definitely is the packaging and i think that's really really interesting um
0: definitely okay i'm, I'm gonna turn this bus around here for you i now want you to tell me about a project that you are the most proud of the one that just makes your heart sing
1: i mean is it okay to talk about the course again yeah I of course too. okay
0: of course um, of course
1: honestly it's it's the green design course just because uh, this is something that has been in my mind that i wanted to do for like three years now and yep. i'm finally doing it and you know i've I took it really slow and I did a basically like nine months of engagement with the community and webinars and, and free webinars and free resources. And just, you know, letting people know that, you know, I'm trying to do the content marketing approach as ethically as I can and give away as much information for free as I can. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, when I do, it does come time to launch something that is paid. People know that it's going to be of an extremely high quality because they've been through all of the free, uh, information that I've given them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I'm so happy that I've been able to find sort of like a compromise in terms of the price and accessibility and, you know, create a payment plan that works for people. And I know that it's very popular right now in the online space to launch courses based on value-based pricing, which mm-hmm. I don't want to knock any creator for doing that. You know, I think everyone should charge what they're worth, but my goals with this course are different. And it's more about volume of people going through the course to be able to maybe in a big way one day sort of raise awareness in the industry and change what's normal. And to do that, I want the price to be accessible to anyone because mm. I even in you know, in Corona, a lot of people are on harder times. And I don't think that it's fair to assume that people can afford thousands of dollars right now. On their education I'm sure mm-hmm. there are some people that that can but I, I don't think it's appropriate to su- assume that for everyone mm-hmm. and the reaction that I've gotten from that has you know made me so emotional because there are people that message me and thank me for that transparency and pricing and the payment plan that doesn't have interest on it and just the fact that I was thinking about that and making it available for everyone and mm-hmm. that's why I think it's so important to have information be like as low cost as possible. You know, I think schools should be free. I think universities should be free, but I obviously need to pay my bills, but you know, I- I'm so happy that I've found a-, a compromise that is affordable for everyone so that they can learn this about sustainable design and really, you know, create design that aligns with their values and their morals and mm-hmm. what they want to be doing in the world and hopefully alleviate some of their eco anxiety about the climate and the future and what that, that brings and not, you know, put them in debt to take my course.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I love that. And you definitely, from everything you've talked about throughout this episode, have put your like massive amounts of effort, put your heart into this, put your your brand on the line for this and to really bring this message out there. So obviously this is important to you and I think it's, it should be important for the whole industry, even if even if you're a designer and you're still allowing customers to do a soft touch laminate, like there's (laughs) other parts of this that you can implement. And Mm -hmm. like you were saying earlier, it starts with making some small decisions that just start to gain momentum with you and your clients and makes that transition to being a bit more rigid on your sustainability values.
1: Yeah, it's it's all a progress. And when I started, I didn't have the eco policy that I have today, and I was a little bit more lenient with clients. And the thing that I found really is that for the most part, clients just don't know. They are coming to you as an authority on no matter what that is for design. And so being a print authority to them is part of that process. They're going to trust what you say. And usually, if they you know want something like gold foil or a t- soft touch matte coating, uh. They just don't know and so when you explain to them oh actually that's a single-use plastic or oh actually that can't be recycled and can potentially leach heavy metals into the ground when it goes to landfill they're usually appalled because this isn't their industry they don't know these things Mm -hmm. and sometimes it just takes a sort of gentle but firm explanation of why they might not want to do that for them to be horrified and pick Mm -hmm. a different option Mm -hmm. because There are so many choices available in the print space for green design right now. You know, Mohawk has an incredible new line of papers with their renewal line that is just stunning. Uh, Just absolutely beautiful. There's amazing recycled cotton stocks with Nina as well. And there's just so many different options that you can create these beautiful tactile print projects for clients and create that, you know, more luxurious experience that they may be looking for with the soft touch matte coating in a way that's environmentally friendly and actually improves their brand value and their brand presence. Because let's be real. Everyone puts a gloss, a metallic like gold and a soft touch matte coating on their cards. It's easy to do that. It's cheap to do that. And so that it's not special anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Other ways to be impactful. Mm-hmm. Well, Emma, you've reached the point of the show for the Ask It Forward question. That is where I have a question for you from my last guest, and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Okay. So first up, um, and I love how this has worked out. Ever since I've implemented this Ask It Forward question, the question that the previous guest asks, and they have no idea who they're going to be asking this question of, it's always Mm -hmm. so aligned and and it's just a complete by completely by fluke. So, um my previous guest was Brandon Crawford from Second Sun Design Co out of Charleston, South Carolina, and he wanted to ask you would you ever work for free? Why or why not?
1: Uh yeah. I I do believe in the power of working pro bono for projects. Mm-hmm. Um I have historically done pro bono branding projects. Um I have very specific criteria for what I deem valuable for that. Um, usually it's extremely small nonprofits, uh, mm-hmm. political causes and uh, like progressive political causes, um, <laughs> climate focused political causes. Mm-hmm. and just industries that you know really need an extra help because they're doing something extremely good in the world that aligns with my values and the values of Little Fox. And I think it is important to, you know, give back to the community in that way. I don't think it's the only way. I think uh, to sort of derail the question a little bit, I think a lot of people default to volunteering or pro bono experience, uh, pro bono work when they think about doing good in their design field. Um, That's sort of like a really big focus in terms of designing for social good right now, in terms of uh, the larger organizations that are present for designers. And I think it's important that we go beyond that and actually look at our uh, techniques and practices in our own studios to reduce impact and do uh, environmental good. But I do think that if you have the financial uh, flexibility and option to be able to give back in that way, then that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I, I think it's something that you should do when you know you have the the finances to be able to give that time for free. Um, I, I think that it's not something that everyone has to do right away in their career or, you know, even a couple of years in, sometimes it can be difficult to get, you know, a sustainable uh, business going before you can allow that time mm-hmm. for free. But it, it, it does have a value. I think you should just be very careful with who you work for free for and make sure that it's something that um, is going to be beneficial for both parties and that you really set like a contract and rules for it in place as well, because otherwise it can get out of scope really, really quickly. And Mm. you definitely want that to be still contained um, in its, in its scope.
0: Definitely love that. Emma, what is the question you would like to ask the next guest?
1: Honestly, I'd really like to ask them what their thoughts are in terms of the role of the designer in the next 10 years uh, in terms of social justice, climate justice and the environmental movement. And, you know, what sort of what sort of perspective they have um, for, you know, what what designers should ethically, morally uh be doing uh, to sort of deal with these very pressing issues that we have with the California wildfires, with uh-huh. the Black Lives Matter movement, um, any and all of that, because really those, those causes are tied together and we cannot have climate justice without social justice. And so um, it's really important, I think, that we all do our bit. So I'm really curious what they have to say about that.
0: So to wrap that up, should I say, what are your thoughts on the role of the designer over the next 10 years for cl- when it comes to climate change or, or sorry, climate justice and social justice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's That's good.
0: Perfect. but you've reached the end of the quickie podcast. Thank you so much for being my guest today. This has been awesome chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much. I've, I've had so much fun. This is absolutely fantastic.
0: All right. All right. Y'all. I know you loved that. I know you loved this episode Please go check out Emma's course. It is good for design. It is good for the world. Go check it out. Also, if you're digging what you're hearing here on the Quickie Podcast, and my God, if you stuck through all of these episodes so far, I hope you do, please head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave me a rating and a review. I would really appreciate it. Helps other people, other designers, other creatives find the podcast and hear this voice, this startlingly shockingly wonderful voice thanks again we'll see you next week bye